This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This will be a little bit like a lesson, a little bit like a testimony. I hope it will be spiritually encouraging to you as well. Go ahead and take your Bibles as we start out. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Probably the best-known missionary in history, certainly in the Bible, was the Apostle Paul. And he gives us a lot of personal testimony in his epistles, the books that he wrote. And here in the second book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'd like to read a few verses starting with verse 8. It says, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that by the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Let's uh, take a moment to pray and then get into the lesson. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time you've given to us, for this church, the opportunity for us to be gathered together. Lord, I pray to bless our time as we consider the real challenges of missionary work. Lord, I pray that you will use this to open our eyes, to spur us on to greater prayer and effort uh, to do your work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever read a missionary biography or heard a missionary story in VBS, Sunday school, or something like that? If you'll just raise your hand. Oftentimes, when we encounter something like that, especially the VBS story, it, it will hone in on one particularly dramatic story from a missionary's life. And so what may have been a lifetime of labor and suffering and service, it's distilled down into just this one episode that took place. It's usually very exciting. It has a, it has a happy ending, oftentimes uh, maybe glamorous. And many times I think that's where we get our concept of missionary life. It's, it's distilled into this, this sort of romantic view, and by that I don't mean you know, a love story or Hallmark movie or something like that, but just this idealized view of reality. This picture here is it's supposed to be rose-colored glasses. I'm colorblind, so I'm hoping that that's, uh, that's rose color there. But we're all familiar with rose-colored glasses. It gives us a certain perspective on things, a rosy look at things. And a lot of times, I think, as we sit in the pews and as you listen to missionaries present their work, and I'm not trying to be down on missionary biographies. I hope many of you will take time to read those because those can be tremendously spiritually challenging and encouraging. But we see the missionary presentations and we see the, the highlights. And oftentimes we don't see all the reality that's behind that. And so as we sit in the pews and view that, and even for missionaries who are preparing to go onto the field, we have this this romantic view that, that we're just going to effortlessly float through this adventurous life and there will be happy natives flooding into the churches, asking to be baptized and thanking us for our selfless service to Jesus Christ. And that's oftentimes, at least in my experience, not the case. And I've seen many people, both 
full-time missionaries and others be impacted by disappointment and disillusionment as they realize some of the real challenges of missionary life. And so what I want to do this evening is talk to you about some of the realities of missionary life. Uh, many of you have, I'm sure, know some of these things, but I think Pastor Asher wanted you to, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. All right, so we've got our rose-colored glasses. Here we are, uh, tribes of, of smiling natives, and what we're going to try to do tonight is just take the rose-colored glasses off. Say, why are we doing this? Well, Paul felt like it was important to him to let the other churches and his supporters know about some of the difficulties that he had faced in the province of Asia for a couple reasons. First of all, to give glory to God. Say, God delivered us from all these things. And secondly, to encourage them in their prayer. I know Good News Baptist Church is a church that loves missions and loves missionaries. And so I hope this will be an encouragement and a help for you as you labor together in prayer for our missionaries. Perhaps there are some of you out here who are considering missions, and I'm hoping that this will not be a discouragement to you, but that this will give you fresh determination to follow through with what God has given us to do. So let's take a few moments and just look at kind of the life cycle of a missionary. In our class, we went over this many times. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. All right? And so from the Bible, we took some time. We, we did a whole, whole lesson on this. Perhaps if you have time and can go back to the church website or the podcast and listen to some of these lessons. I'm not trying to promote myself, but there's some, I think there's some useful things we can take away from there. But we came to this definition of a missionary. A disciple of Christ who is selected by God and approved by the local church to be sent out for the primary purpose of propagating the gospel. All these are very important things. We don't have time to go in, in depth here, but God calls somebody, and the local church says, yes, we believe this person has been called of God. We want to authorize them. We want to support them. And in our churches, this coincides with the process of deputation. The missionaries traveling oftentimes from church to church, presenting their ministry, trying to raise the financial support and the prayer support that they're going to need to do to fulfill the mission that God has given them to do. And this all culminates in the sending of the missionary. Here's our two first missionaries in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, the elders of the church at Antioch, were praying over them to send them out. They'd been called of God. The church approved them and appointed them, and they sent them out. And this is an exciting time. It's an exciting time for the church. It's an exciting time for the missionary. In, in, in the way we do things nowadays, the missionary spent a year, two years, three years out raising support. They're excited to go over, and they have been celebrated and praised and put up on a pedestal in many cases in all these churches. They're very excited, looking forward to go, and it's a high point for everybody that's concerned. And then they go to the field. How many of you are familiar with culture shock? All right. I know in a church like this, uh, many of you probably have first-hand experience with culture shock. The dictionary definition is a feeling of disorientation experienced by someone who is suddenly subjected to an unfamiliar culture, way of life, or set of attitudes. You can get culture shock moving across the U.S. in some cases. 
But when you go overseas, you're usually hitting all three of these. Unfamiliar culture, unfamiliar way of life, unfamiliar uh, set of attitudes. Some scientists have, have given us a little learning curve here of, of culture shock. All right, so if you see the dotted line all the way on your left, all right, your left, this is the point at which the person leaves their home, host, their home culture. They leave, in our case, America. And you see the, the well-being, the excitement, it goes up. You get over, maybe you've taken a missions trip before. Man, you get on the ground and it's like, man, this is great. This is so unique. Everything is so different. This is so exciting. And all of a sudden, it kind of starts to fall off a cliff. As you start to realize how truly different things really are. And then oftentimes, after several months, you begin to adjust to the new culture. You start to feel, hey, I can do this. I'm starting to understand how things work here. And you see the, the line is rising again. And then usually, after a few more months, you really go off the cliff. Because then you realize, there's a lot more going on here under the surface. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> There's only, there's only two dips in this graph, but I've talked to missionaries who've been on the field for 20 years, and they say they still have culture shock days. It's, a, it's an ongoing struggle for missionaries as we adjust to all these different things. And like I said, many of you who've been in the military, been overseas for whatever reason, can identify with some of this. What, what are some of the factors that play into culture shock? Well, food is a factor. Um, how many of you would say you have an emotional connection to food? You might be more emotionally attached to food than you realize. That's what I found out when I went to Cambodia. Um, here's, a, here's a few of the foods we eat. Um, this first one with the rice, and um, that's snail stir-fry. Um, this one on the bottom is called fish amok. It's a kind of stew. And then, yes, those are fried tarantulas. I have eaten two out of three of these. When I was in the international ministry at Crown College, we had this motto, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. <laughs> Thankfully, no one has tried to feed me a tarantula yet. And I'm not out looking for one. <laughs> you know, we've grown to enjoy a lot of Cambodian food, but there's sometimes you just want to eat some pizza or spaghetti, or something like that. And so for, for missionaries who are going over to a new field, especially when you first get over, this can be a major adjustment, getting used to different kind of food. All right, traffic. I mean, this makes I-64 look like a playground. I mean, this is, this is Cambodian traffic at its best. There's bikes. There's uh, little tuk-tuk, rickshaw things, there's, there's motorbikes, you get on the country, there's cows, people, water buffaloes, I mean, what isn't on the road? This can be stressful, and I'm speaking from firsthand experience. Language. All right, I want you to listen very closely. See what you can understand. Men, 
công khai chấm phun này chất kháng của khai bệnh là ổ chiên Alright, how many of you think you know what they were talking about there? <laughs> how many of you think you could replicate one word that they said? Besides, besides people on this row right over here. You know, when you get off the plane or the boat or however it is, you get off and it's just like this mash of sounds. Like you can't even make out individual sounds and individual words. And the language is a huge uh, aspect in culture shock. What about the climate? Uh, we live in a tropical climate. That has its set of, of challenges. It's hot and muggy all year long. Uh, imagine August weather here for 12 months of the year. And so that can be a challenge. Some people live in the opposite. They live in very cold climates. The, the neuros that we supported up in British Columbia, they were snowed in half of the year. Some people live in desert climates. And so this, this is something that can wear on you. There's, it's different from what we're used to. A lot of different cultural aspects. Um, we don't have to deal with this so much in Cambodia, but many people who go to the Middle East and to Muslim-majority countries um, they have to deal with different kind of dress standards and expectations of gender roles, what women are allowed to do and not allowed to do. And that can be a major stressor for folks. Dealing with the government and corruption. Uh, where we live in Cambodia now, we are required to check in with the local police once a month to renew our permission to stay in the community. Um, when we lived in the capital city, we would get randomly pulled over by the police on a regular basis because they wanted coffee money. It sounds funny, but after it happens a couple, about a dozen times, it's not very funny anymore. And so um, this can be a, a big stressor as well. Things just don't work the same way. How about going to the grocery store? I don't know how well you can see this picture, but this is my wife shopping in the open market in Cambodia. She's at our pork vendor. And yes, those are pig heads in the background. Um, you can get those if you'd like. That's an adjustment, uh, shopping in the open market. And, um, and so these are all things that can cause this stress on missionaries going over. Here's a big one. Living in the midst of a country that is dominated by false religion. It's a spiritual battle. Um, where we live in Cambodia, there's a Buddhist temple in every village. And people spend a lot of time going there, making offerings. Here they've offered an entire roasted pig in front of the, offering, in front of the statue of Buddha. Uh, people make offerings to false gods and spirits on a daily basis. And that can really wear on you as you're, as you're in this spiritual struggle. So here's some of the things that contribute to culture shock. Uh, how, how do people cope with that? How do people deal with that? Unfortunately, it can often lead to a lot of negative reactions. When I talk to missionaries who are getting ready to go to the field, I say, you know, culture shock, they should really call it flesh shock. Because you're going to be under all this stress, and your flesh will rear its ugly head. <laughs> and it, it doesn't like it. It's not happy with it. Uh, many times it can lead missionaries to want to isolate themselves. 
They know that if they go out into the market, into the community, they're going to be dealing with all this kind of stress. They don't understand what people are saying, why they're doing the things they're doing. And there can be a great temptation to isolate, to just go in and, and just kind of cushion yourself against everything. It can lead to despair and, and, and depression as the, it takes its emotional toll on the missionary. It can force people off the field if they're not able to deal with this depression and despair from not coping with the culture shock properly. It can lead to hostility towards the host culture. You go there, you've been there for months and months and months, you still cannot understand why people do these awful things they do. And it can, in some cases, and I've seen it happen, cause missionaries to begin to get hostile and hateful towards the people that they're supposed to minister to. In the end, it's a spiritual struggle. And we'll talk about that a little more later on. Right now, we're just, just trying to put out some of these things that missionaries deal with, especially as they are first getting to the field. This culture shock is a big one. I want to talk about language acquisition a little bit more. This is one of my favorite Cambodian signs. I was able to take a picture of it. It was in one of the Buddhist temples. Once opened, please keep the door closed to prevent cow getting in. Shank. It was meant to be thank you. I don't know what happened there. I assume there would be bad consequences if I did not close the door. The language barrier can be a big deal. Why do missionaries want to try to learn the language? Well, this is pretty obvious, everyday living. Um, you want to be able to go to the market and buy what you need to get. You want to be able to go to the gas station and tell them how much gas you want. I remember our first year there, we were trying to get some mint, like the herb mint. And so I was talking to our language tutor. I said, how do you say the word mint in Khmer, which is the language of Cambodia? She said, ji on kam. It's like, okay. So we went over it a couple dozen times. And I felt pretty good about my ability to say it. So we went back to the house, had lunch. I went out that afternoon. I went to the market. I was there for about 30 minutes. I came back without mint. They have these booths where it's just tons and tons of herbs. I don't know which one was mint. And they could not understand what I was saying, and I could not remember the right way to say it. I went there three times before I got mint. And so the, the, you know, the language thing is a, is a big deal. Cultural understanding. This is huge. This is why it, I'm explaining this so we can understand why is it that missionaries oftentimes will spend a year or a couple of years learning the language when they first get onto the field. Here's an example of why this cultural understanding is so important. Does anyone know what the second person singular pronoun is in English? This is not a trick question. You, okay? Second person, you. I could turn to every single person in this congregation and address you as you. That is not the case in Cambodia. Here is just a sampling of the words that could mean you in Khmer. So there's a word that you use when you're writing. There's a word when you're talking to God or the king. There's a word you use when you're talking to a monk. There's a whole bunch of family ones. Older men, I would refer to as grandfather. Older women, I refer to as grandmother, addressing them. There is no word for you. And so every time you meet someone, you have to assess, okay, is this person older than me, younger than me? Is this a brother, uncle, aunt? 
And this is, doesn't even count the people with Chinese ancestry who have a whole different series. Or teachers who have another title. When we first came to Cambodia, they didn't know how to refer to me. A lot of them would just call me Mr. <laughs> Mr. That was my pronoun. And so uh, I found myself wishing that people would wear the little pins with their preferred pronoun on them. <laughs> Learning this, though, helped us understand a lot about the culture. You know what's important to them? Showing respect. And when you use these the right way, subtle ways to show people that you value them, that we're close, that we're family, that we honor them, and it helps you understand how society is and build these closer relationships with people that you just can't do through a second language. Another reason to learn the language, you're learning people's heart language. You know, you can, you can make a business deal in a second language. You can do a lot of things in a second language, but it's very difficult to share the gospel with someone in a language that is not their heart language. So these are all reasons that missionaries end up spending a lot of time on language acquisition. I thought this was interesting. Here's some easy languages. These only take about half a year, supposedly, to learn if you're studying full-time. Uh, languages like Spanish, uh, Portuguese, French, Italian, uh, many of these uh, European languages. Here's some medium difficulty. Hindi, Russian, Vietnamese, Turkish, Polish. Uh, Khmer, which we learn, is in this group. Uh, these only take about a year to learn if you're studying full-time. Then there are hard languages, all right, as if the other ones weren't difficult enough. Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, some of the most difficult. These are for English speakers to learn, and this, this is different based on what language you're coming from. Some of your missionaries are dealing with some real monsters when they're trying to learn the language, and they need your prayers as they're trying to do this. Different ways that, that uh, missionaries are able to approach their language acquisition, going to a language school, uh, using tutors. This is how we did. This is one of our tutors who taught us the Khmer language, and of course, getting out there and using it on the street. And so, culture shock, a big hurdle for missionaries getting on the field. Language acquisition, another big hurdle. Missionary family life. I've heard people say lots of times how the certain percentage of your time on the mission field was just going to be spent living life. And it just somehow never registered until I was on the mission field. And there is a lot to that, especially living in a third world country, like many of your missionaries do. In Cambodia, we encounter what I like to call the fishbowl effect. And I think this is true in many places around the world. What's the fishbowl effect? Everybody, it feels like everybody's looking at you. And the reason it feels that way is because everybody is looking at you. <laughs> you live in a fishbowl. Um, you know, in... Western cultures, you know, we have this saying, a man's house is his castle. That's not a saying in Asia. Um, in fact, I discovered in the Khmer language, there is not a word that means privacy. Believe me, I tried to figure it out because I was like, I need to tell my neighbors I need some privacy. There's no way to do that. And so, you know, the last house we lived in, it opened out right onto the street and there was this big sliding metal doors. That was our only door. 
And there was cracks in it, under it, a little place where you could reach in and, and, and do the lock. And, you know, the neighborhood kids would just come along and peek in there, yell for our kids to come play. Um, you know, there's this lack of privacy. That can cause a lot of stress. Uh, I, I think a lot of missionaries deal with this. People are always looking at you, uh, asking lots of probing questions. If I had a, a nickel for every time someone had asked me how much money I make, I would make a lot more than I do right now. Uh, that's just a normal part of the conversation in Cambodia. That takes some getting used to for an American. You know, how much do you get paid a month? Well, how much did you pay for your car? How much are you paying for rent? Oh, my goodness, you pay that much for rent? Can you believe that? Hey, come here. You know how much he's paying for rent? Um, this is a stressor. Uh, that, that many people deal with. We dealt with it in Cambodia. I think a lot of missionaries are, are dealing with it. Uh, people are talking about you all the time. They're asking questions about you. Trying to figure out your, your kid's education. Some places have great education systems. Some places don't. You have to decide, are you going to homeschool your kids? Are you going to enroll them in the local education system? What if the local education system teaches a godless religion, like Buddhism? How do you deal with that? These are all decisions that missionaries have to make. Dealing with medical care. Some countries have decent medical care. Some have socialized systems where you have to be on a long waiting list. Some just have horrible health care. We live in Cambodia where we live now. We're four hours from Western-style hospitals. So your kid starts running a fever, you've got a decision to make. Is this just a Tylenol fever, or is this we need to drive four hours to the capital fever? One of the reasons we're back here now is because of the medical care situation, my wife having a baby, different complications. And so uh, this, is a, this is another factor that plays into the realities of missionary life for many people. How many of you ever heard the term third culture kid before? third culture kid. This is a term that's applied um, to many people, sometimes military kids, uh, diplomats kids, but especially missionary kids. The idea is their parents come from one culture, they go to live in another culture, and the kids are neither here nor there. They're a third culture kid. I've heard it illustrated this way. Uh, here's Mr. Blue. He comes from blue country, and the Lord has called him to be a missionary to yellow country. And so Mr. Blue leaves blue country to go to yellow country to be a missionary. And after he's in yellow country for a little while, he starts to realize that being blue really makes him stand out in yellow country. And so he starts to kind of adapt some of his ways, some of his habits, the way he does things. And over the course of time... He, he adapts to where he's sort of green. All right, He's not quite yellow, but he's not as blue as he was when he got there. He's somewhere in between. And being green makes it much easier for him to live in yellow country. Well, what happens when he goes back to blue country? He's not blue anymore. And he's kind of in between. He doesn't quite fit in in his place of service, and he doesn't quite fit in at home anymore because he's made changes in his lifestyle and in his ways and in his habits so that he can be more effective 
in his place of service. Many missionary kids are this green person right here. They're not quite natives where, they're, where they serve, and they're not quite natives in America or wherever it is where they came from. Many missionaries face this as well. And that can be a big challenge for both the children and for the adults. I've painted a, a, a big list of, of hurdles, of difficulties uh, that missionaries face. And we haven't even talked about why they're doing all this. You know, uh, we don't go over across the ocean so we can eat weird food and, and, you know, deal with an unpleasant climate and have people look at us and stare at us and ask questions about us all the time. Missionaries also deal with, with serious ministry pressures, just like folks who are in the ministry here in the States, um, going out and evangelizing to people who don't like Jesus, have never heard of Jesus, who will do a Bible study with you in many cases for weeks on end and then decide they can't do it. This lady in the picture, an older Cambodian lady, we studied with her for several months until she really understood the gospel. And she decided to reject it. She said, I'm, I'm old, I've devoted myself to Buddha, I can't do this. That's disappointing. That can be a real stress on the missionary. Uh, discipleship, working with people who've come from a background of idolatry, of, of spiritual of spirit worship, of addictions, and things like that, dealing with, with church issues and such. And so there's, there's all that on top of everything else. Not sure how that got there. There's our green man still stuck in limbo. I've presented all of this to you because I, I hope that this will help all of us understand the reality of missions without putting on the rose-colored glasses. I hope it will help you as you pray for your missionaries. You have many missionaries that you're supporting and praying for who are on deputation, some who are new on the field, some who have been on the field for many years, and these are the things that they deal with day by day. And I hope this will help you as you pray to pray more intelligently for them. I hope it will help you to encourage your missionaries. If your missionaries are going to have a long and a productive ministry, these are things they're going to have to get through. And you encouraging them and being there for them and contacting them is something that's going to help them during that time. And I want us all to get a clear eye view of what missions is, what the missionary task is. I don't think that means a negative view, but I think it is a view that has to acknowledge the challenges that are out there. I know I've gone a little long, but I just want to take a few minutes to show you this clip of a, a sermon that has been very impactful for me, and I think will help give us a perspective on the challenges that missionaries face and the way that they can get through that to have a, a useful ministry for the Lord. It's a message given by a man by the name of Paris Reedhead. He was a he shares some of his testimony at the time when he was a missionary on the field in North Africa. If you'll ask me why I went to Africa, I'll tell you I went primarily to improve on the justice of God. I didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be saved. And so I went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. 
Now, I had to put it in so many words, but if you'll analyze what I've just told you, do you know what it is? It's humanism. That I was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when I got to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around in the woods waiting for, looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. That they were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth they knew. And when I found that out, I assure you, I was so angry with God that one occasion in prayer I told him that it was a, a mighty little thing he'd done sending me out there to reach these people that were waiting to be told how to go to heaven. When I got there, I found out they knew about heaven and didn't want to go there. And that they were loved their sin and wanted to stay in it. I went out there motivated by humanism. I'd seen pictures of lepers. I'd seen pictures of ulcers. I'd seen pictures of native funerals. And I didn't want my fellow human beings to suffer in hell eternally after such a miserable existence on earth. But it was there in Africa that God began to tear through the overlay of this humanism. And it was that day in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For here was, I was coming to grips with the fact that the people that I thought were ignorant and wanted to know how to go to heaven and were saying, someone come and teach us, actually didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible and no interest in Christ, and they loved their sin and wanted to continue in it. And I was to the place at that time where I felt the whole thing was a sham and a mockery, and I'd been sold a bill of goods. And I wanted to come home. And there alone in my bedroom, as I faced God honestly with what my heart felt, it seemed to me I heard him say, yes. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The heathen are lost. And they're going to go to hell, not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin. And because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sakes. And I heard as clearly as I've ever heard, though it wasn't with physical voice, but it was the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this. I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? And it reversed it all and changed it all and righted it all. And I wasn't any longer working for my cup in ten shekels and a jar, but I was serving the living God. I was there not for the sake of the heathen. I was there for the Savior that had endured the agonies of hell for the heathen, who didn't deserve it. But he deserved them. 
because he died for them. You know, missionary life is not as glamorous and as romantic as it is sometimes made it out to be or as we expect. There's not always tribes rushing to be baptized, miracles taking place, churches being started everywhere. Missionary life is definitely adventurous, uh, but sometimes that, the adventure gets to be a little bit much. But as was brought out in that sermon clip there, the reality is better than the romance. Missionaries have the privilege to serve God and bear witness to Jesus Christ, whether in victory or failure, success or suffering. It's not the idealized view we can get in our heads, and yet the reality is so much better. Sometimes it does require suffering and discomfort for us to do what God has given us to do, and yet that is a reward in and of itself. And so I hope that as you continue to hold the ropes and support missions here at Good News Baptist Church, this will encourage you to pray fervently for your missionaries. As many of them face crises, just as this man uh, related, that the Lord will triumph and help to give them that encouragement to continue going forward for the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the work that he's given us to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you uh, that you are worthy. You are worthy to be known and to be worshipped and to be served on every place in this world by every person who's been born. Lord, I thank you that we are able to have a part in that. I thank you for the part that this church has in it. Pray, Lord, that you would encourage all of us to take fresh energy and courage to continue going forward for you to serve you no matter the cost, no matter the difficulty, no matter the suffering, to see you uplifted and glorified. Pray that you would bring fruit and victory in your time on your terms. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.